This episode of Positive Space is brought to you by Chartpack, parent company of 14 art supply brands including Grumbacher, Molotow Markers, Higgins, and Cullinore Drawing Supplies. Pens, pencils, paints, and paper, Chartpack has it. Check out Chartpack and their brands at chartpack.net. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory, and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Valerie Powell, welcome to Positive Space. Today we have a wonderful, wonderful person joining us via Skype, and this is Heather Zatmary. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of your teaching at SCAD, kind of what are you doing at Savannah College of Art and Design, and maybe just a little bit about your, your art practice. All right, well, coincidentally, this summer marks my 20th year at SCAD. Oh, wow. Um, Teaching and foundations, yeah. My background is a little different than other foundations professors, I think. My undergrad's an architecture degree. And then I was actually at SCAD teaching fibers, not teaching fibers, taking fibers for my graduate program. Mm -hmm. And um, after I graduated, they needed a professor part-time for the summer. So I started teaching about a year after I graduated, and then that kind of just transitioned into an adjunct position in foundations. And um, I've been here ever since. Wow. Yeah. My art practice is, uh, I guess you would consider that work I do new media. It's all mm-hmm. data driven. I am kind of obsessive compulsive. I count a lot of things. And although I get bored, so I only count them for a few years at a time and I move on to something else. But I've done bodies of work based on how much weight I gained and lost every week. I've counted the likes and comments my Facebook post got over about four years. I've tracked how much I've walked and run for exercise. Currently, I'm not telling anybody what I'm tracking because I don't want to affect the numbers. Oh, but, wow. Yeah. You're like so undercover I'm sort totally of. Totally undercover right now. Total secret. <laughs> um, and then I take that data and I 3D model form and I work from the 3D models into a few different types of work. Some of it gets turned into line drawings that are laser etched in wood. And then some of those line drawings then get animated. So it's kind of a long, complex process that goes back and forth from the computer to real life, back to the computer. So it it seems like like your process is heavily involved in the process in terms of time-consuming, and there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes. Absolutely, absolutely. So I will take the laser etchings and then animate them. And so sometimes what ends up being viewed is a digital animation, And then sometimes they get 3D printed and sometimes they become sort of photo composite, make-believe sculpture that look real in real sites. So there's different kind of outputs, just depending on where I feel like it needs to go. Oh, wow. And so how do you feel like this kind of 
process or various components, I mean, does does that find its way into the classroom in terms of the kind of projects that you teach? Only slightly. The one way that I kind of can see a direct link is that in my 2D classes and in my color classes, I will teach students really basic animation techniques just using the Photoshop timeline so that mm-hmm. they can kind of create some animated GIFs, GIFs, whichever way you prefer to say it. Um, <laughs> but I don't require it. There's a couple projects in each course where it's optional for the students to animate the projects. And so I use some of the techniques I use in my work that way. But the data-driven part, every summer I think about introducing it to my 2D classes, and every summer I chicken out. <laughs> And and why would you say that you chicken out? Is it because you're worried that they'll collect a bunch of weird, you know, data or something? I, or? Well, to a couple reasons. One is that I don't know that in a 10-week quarter, which is what SCAD is on, that they have enough time to collect enough interesting data mm. to drive something. You know, in a week, you can kind of collect a little bit. But yeah, that's my main issue is can I take it to a place where it can turn into something interesting? I'm also probably underestimating them a little bit and I'm not real confident that the data they'll collect will be that interesting. <laughs> you know, how, how much time they've been playing video games or, you know, right, how right. much they slept or sure, <laughs> how many times sure. they checked Instagram in an hour. <laughs> Or in 10 minutes, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm guilty of as well. So I I can't complain, but yeah, it's, it's tough. It's really tough, but well, so how, you know, you've been teaching, you said for 20 years, years. that's, that's a moment. I mean, how, how have you seen things change? How have you seen the curriculum evolve? I mean, I think especially as it relates to foundations, so a lot of things have changed in 20 years. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, and I hate to get stereotypical, but I will. You know, when I first started teaching, I didn't really have a cell phone. Or if I did, it was just this tiny little cell phone. It was meant for making phone calls. Right. Um, you know, I wasn't even texting. You know, there was no smartphone. So the idea of kind of having students use any apps in their work or just being able to Google from the classroom wasn't an option. So it really affected research. It's affected just my ability to present information in the course. You know, if something comes up in conversation in class, I'll immediately sit down at the computer, Google something, show it, sometimes without screening at first, which isn't always the wisest idea. (laughs) I've learned the hard way, um, but I still do it. Um, that wasn't an option. So, you know, just kind of presenting information to my students has shifted. And definitely the way that they communicate with the world has shifted, you know? Um, yeah, definitely. Mostly just because of that just communication ability with phones. You know, and we didn't have any online component of the course. That wasn't an option. So there wasn't really engaging with the kids outside of the physical classroom. And just... You know, it's a whole generation of students different. They just think differently. They interact with each other differently, sometimes probably not for the better. <laughs> you know, I, I find that they don't sure. they don't talk to each other as much. You know, there's a different sense of community in, oh, absolutely. in the physical space. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's like they're more comfortable to text each other than to just physically go over and sit next to that person and, and talk to them. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I've actually mm-hmm. started sometimes just in the middle of class, just starting an icebreaker just to get some conversation going so they get to know each other a little bit. Um, mm. And, you know, and I find, so they, yeah. you know, some of my earlier students were really good about making friends across majors so that they would collaborate with each other when they were in school and then beyond, you know, even now as professionals, they've graduated 15 or so years ago and they're still working together. Um, I'm concerned that this cohort won't necessarily have those connections because as soon as they get a free moment, instead of talking to the person next to them, they're looking at their phone. Mm. That's that's a good point. I mean, although they might sit in close proximity or have access to each other's, you know, drawings or whatever, there's maybe not as much um, conversation about the work. That's that's curious. Yeah. So so what kind of icebreakers have you used that have, have sort of helped to, to break down that that trend that you've been noticing? Well, it's nothing that um, groundbreaking, but I'll ask them to you know name their favorite movie. Mm-hmm. And so that will always prompt conversation. Either they find people that they had interests, shared interests that they never would have thought would have happened, or they start fighting, which I actually prefer when they start arguing, because at least they're thinking critically. Um, <laughs> or sometimes it's something as silly as like, what's your favorite? Sure, and they're talking. But, yeah, that they're talking. Sure. It's so just, it's like not an art related. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's hardly ever art related. It's it's always I just want something pretty easy just to kind of prompt conversation, um, or you know, especially that's towards, great. towards that, the end of a quarter, smart. I'll just start asking them what they're doing with their vacation. It's nothing that innovative, but it gets a conversation rolling. But but no, I mean I I think sometimes the least innovative things are are the ones that really help the most. <laughs> like, that's true. because they're just they need to happen and they're, you know, sometimes we assume that they're really, if this is going to be something good, it must be epic and it must have, you know, like unicorns and be really complicated. But, um, but I think that, that, that idea of needing them to acknowledge each other and sort of start a community in some way, um, is so important, man, that's really huge. Agreed. <laughs> I thought I might have lost you for a second. I was no, like, no, no. Oh, no. I, I was trying to think of something really smart to say, but I'm out. <laughs> well, and I think that probably brings me to my next question, Uh-oh. <laughs> which is, you know, it seems like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's very friendly, but I, you know, I don't remember, you're one of those friends that I don't remember when I met you, where it was, how it happened, but it's just like, You've sort of always been at fate. You've always been at these, you know, um, CCAC or, or whatever. And, um, and it seems like anytime I'm around you, I'm, I'm laughing, you know, like you, you say something or you bring up a story or something like that. And, and it's, it's obviously very pleasant. And it seems like there was a conference I went to where you gave a presentation specifically about humor and how you use humor in the classroom and how you feel like it's it's a really important tool to use within that that kind of community space and I hope I'm not making up that you did this but I um I feel like that's pretty accurate no so so um, can, can you talk a little bit about how about how I use humor yeah. How, how do you use humor? So it's interesting because, um, one, that was a panel that I chaired at CCAC. 
And so I know that there's a lot of crossover between CCAC and FATE, a lot of people that are involved in both. And what's interesting is that, you know, I only chaired the panel. So I kind of gave an introduction, but I was really looking for, you know, other people's input, you know, hear how other people do it. But it's interesting to see that people remember you know, kind of my name attached to that panel, obviously, because I chaired it. But I wasn't really talking so much about how I use it. However, it came up because I remember sitting in panels at both Fate and CCAC, and the ones that I remember the most are ones that make me laugh. Uh And so I wanted to have a panel that was all about laughing. I wanted to have a fun, (laughs) engaging informative panel. So that's where the idea came from. And then when I started putting together my introduction, I remembered that I teach my students how to mind map for one of the projects that I introduce after midterm. And the way I demonstrate mind mapping is on the big whiteboard in front of the classroom, I explaining to them that mind mapping is this technique for recording the very nonlinear way our brains think. So while I'm explaining it, I write on the board in the middle of the board, the topic we're going to mind map is why we like professors at Mary. And then I stand there awkwardly for a minute or two, (laughs) (laughs) hoping that my students are going to say something. And um, what I find is... Within the first couple suggestions, my humor always comes up. Um, And then often that branches out to my sarcasm because that's generally my kind of theme and humor is I'm very sarcastic. I'm very self-deprecating, kind of sassy, kind of snarky. But I deliver it in a way that I guess the students um, react well to. And so I use those mind maps. I always take pictures of them, and I kind of use them in my presentation to remember that for some reason they think I'm funny. The trick to it, though, (laughs) is that I don't plan it. You know, I don't have a bank of funny stories that that I know to roll out at certain times of the quarter. I just will randomly start telling stories while my students are working on projects that are kind of tangential to what's going on. And it's mostly because I have a theory on teaching that even if a student doesn't want to be in your course or doesn't want to be doing that particular assignment, as long as you make the experience pleasant and enjoyable, like on a personal level, then it Uh makes the assignment more enjoyable. You know, it's kind of like putting zucchini in a muffin instead of just on your plate. (laughs) Um, And so I just get bored and I start randomly telling them stories that they find funny. And it's just a way to make class tolerable to those students who aren't (laughs) immediately enjoying the experience. Coincidentally, because I knew we'd be talking about this sure, today. Who might be like, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, what I was going to say is I knew we were going to be talking about this today. And 
about an hour before I got here, I put a call out onto Facebook asking my former students if they remembered funny stories I told them because I was trying to remember <laughs> examples. And when I'm trying to remember something funny I've said, I come up with nothing. And it's interesting because <laughs> I didn't do my research far enough ahead of time. I'm that kid that's doing his homework an hour before class. Nice, nice. But two of the responses I got... Because it's always fascinating to see what students will remember that you said that you just don't even ever remember saying. Um, right. One student doesn't remember a specific story, but she thinks it's really funny that I use the term gentleman companion, which <laughs> I don't really know the context or I don't walk around every day saying gentleman <laughs> companion. Like, I mean, were you referring to someone in the class as a gentleman companion? I mean, this is this is interesting. Sure. I don't. I honestly don't know, except that maybe I was referring to my ex as my gentleman companion. I I I don't know. I I I didn't ask for a follow up, but that's definitely what she remembers about me. And then <laughs> another student remembers me telling a story about showing up to the SCAD fashion show in my Target dress and feeling <laughs> out of place. So that's amazing that like that's what they remember. <laughs> it's fascinating and I'm sure over the next couple of days I'm going to get like a fantastic bank of things I probably never should have told my students that that's what they've remembered 10 years down the road. But I but I think it's this it's a thing I do naturally to make myself more human to my students. I want to appear knowledgeable, I want to appear skillful, but I also want them to know that I'm like them you know, and that weird things happen and I don't think I'm perfect and they shouldn't think I'm perfect. And so that's where I think a lot of the self-deprecation, a lot of the sarcasm comes from. Well, I I think it, it, it creates a space that allows everyone to just sort of take a breath and go, okay, we're in this art class. It's real. You know, we're going to take it seriously, but we can also have fun along the way and we don't have to be so rigid and so we're, we're allowed to smile, right? And we're, we're allowed to, you know, in, enjoy ourselves. And like, I, I think about your work and then I think about sort of the kinds of things you're doing in class. And it seems like you're really encouraging them to be observers of the world, you know, like to notice things or to pay attention to either who they are or what they want to be doing or, you know, with like mind mapping or, or whatever. It's like, really paying attention is, is important. It is important to me. And, and my projects aren't necessarily geared towards having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want them to enjoy themselves while they're working their butts off. You know, I think you have to balance that. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's kind of a struggle for those of us that teach in foundations. It's like sometimes students can can see it as just this thing that they have to get through Absolutely. you know like okay I've, I've got to get through this crap and then I'm going to move on to the real things where I can really be serious and wear all black and like do all this awesome <laughs> stuff and and that's really art but all this other stuff is just sort of dumb you know right so it's like how do you kind of bridge that gap in terms of letting them know that it's really important but also something that they can sort of breathe their own life into? Wow. That is a really good question. I do try to make, <laughs> I, I don't know that I'm successful with it all the time, 
But I do try to make several of their projects about their personal interests or about, you know, introspection so that it's not always just an exercise in form. In fact, I can't stand Mm -hmm. projects that are just exercises in form. I always need some level of content um, and it's often kind of driven by their self, which means, you know, I, I'm kind of tired of projects about gaming or I'm trying to think of things that that I see repeatedly. Well, now I'm stuck. <laughs> you know, it's a funny how a couple of weeks outside of school and you, for, you forget yeah. all your pet peeves. <laughs> but right, and everything just becomes, becomes like rose colored. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've already got those glasses on. Um, but I, I think sometimes just addressing the fact that you know they're not loving what they're doing means a lot. You know, if they think you think that your class is the most important thing in their life, they're going to hold a grudge. But if you just address the fact that you know this isn't necessarily what they want to be doing, but here's how it might apply to them, or here's how it might affect them later, or here's how to at least make it tolerable, you buy a lot of points with just the honesty. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and with, with that, it, it seems like you're, you're talking a lot about just how to be a person, mm-hmm. you know, in the classroom and how to be real, you know, and how to talk to them, not as if they're these other people that can't know the stuff behind the curtain, but, but you're saying, hey, you know, yeah, this is something you have to do, of course, right? <laughs> you know, but, but, but here's why it's really relevant and here's how it's going to be useful, you know? Yeah. No? Yeah. And I think sometimes, too, I'll talk about, like, former students and what they've come back to me and told me. And I think that's helpful. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Like, here's what this person said about this experience or here's how this was useful. Yeah. And some of them buy it and some of them think they know better. And that's okay. They'll grow up. I hope. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm... I, yeah, I mean, I know I took a long time to grow up for sure. Oh, I definitely but I mean, did. Do you, I mean, gosh, I, I think about, oh, yeah. I mean, I remember I mean, walking you into. You were in school. Were you really serious about school? I was a goody two-shoes. So I was really serious about making good grades, but I wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. aware of what it took to get the good grades. You know, I had spent most of like, you know, my childhood with things coming very easily to me and not having to really work hard. Mm. And then all of a sudden I was in college um, Mm -hmm. and I was in a very competitive architecture program where everybody was really good slash better than I at many things. And um, I really didn't know what hard work was. And so that was a long learning curve understanding that you couldn't just do something, you know, in an hour and call it done. And I remember, you know, wondering, Uh. why are we drawing apples? I want to be an architect. And, you know, kind of having (laughs) that chip on my shoulder that it was a waste of time, you know, and it wasn't, you know, until you get a year or two in that you understand why having so many of these skills are beneficial. And half my class in architecture school didn't end up working in architecture as we finished. So those skills became really important as 
artists, as web designers. Oh, really? As, you know, city planners. Yeah, I think what's interesting about the time I was in school is that there weren't classes in web design. There weren't classes in app designs. It was skills that people picked up in order to do whatever they were doing. So we were learning to design our websites to show our architecture work. You know, people were learning how to create games just because they wanted to. And so when we were coming out of school, people just ended up getting freelance work doing these things because we had these skills. So we were kind of at this weird cusp of digital design that a lot of people ended up following just because we had the skill set, not because we necessarily had a particular degree. Oh, wow. And so do you ever talk about that in the classroom, about how you sort of know what it's like to sort of be sitting somewhere and going, really, I'm doing this? Oh, I totally do. I totally do. And, you know, I definitely talk about, I I, I remember so specifically having to draw a banana. And, you know, I took my yellow color pencil and I colored in the banana. And I remember my teacher telling me I was lazy. And I knew... 100% I'm not lazy, but it's that no one ever showed me that maybe there were some other colors in the banana besides yellow. And he wasn't the best teacher. He was a graduate student um, who was teaching a foundations class and he didn't have the best attitude and he didn't, he wasn't a teacher by trade. So my parents actually um, sent me to a Mm -hmm. private tutor to teach me how to draw outside of my drawing class oh wow yeah and that's and I definitely remember that and I think about that often when I have students who aren't working hard and think that they they just need to be shown how to work hard Oh, that's such a great example. I mean, because I think it's it's easy as a professor to go, well, they just don't care, you know, and just sort of write it off as like, yeah, they're lazy or, you know, something else and be a little bit more passive about it. But when you think about that, they are hungry. They maybe just don't know how to do it, you know, and how to research or how to mix a purple or, you know, whatever it is. Well, and I have a good attitude for about a month. But then if I, if I, I'm not going to say that attitude lasts for the entire quarter. Cause there's always a point at which, um, if they're not responding, I start reciprocating. Sure. Sure. Well, and I, I mean, I think about my own career and I've, I've been doing this 10 years now, which feels like a thousand years, which feels like I should know something really important by now, which I really don't. But do you... I mean, how do you not become really cynical or like hopeless or just feel like, oh, no, about things sometimes? So my default is always half empty. And I've had to go through a lot of therapy (laughs) to remember (laughs) how to override that default. Um, And I don't do it often enough. And anybody who knows me well will verify that. (laughs) I kind of see myself as a happy pessimist, you know, that. I can still laugh even when I'm complaining, but I think what keeps me from thinking it's hopeless is the 85% of my students who bust their butts and who actually do learn and do improve. And especially now that I've been teaching 20 years, 
it's those kids that are out there working professionally that are kicking ass that are working on Broadway and working for Pixar and, you know, have 20,000 Instagram followers and are ending up in the pages of Martha Stewart's magazine when she still had one. I don't remember if she has one now or not, but (laughs) it's those kids that, that weren't always my best students. In fact, oftentimes they're not my best students, but they're just persistent and they want to learn and they just know how to make things happen. And so when I'm talking to the other students, I'm thinking about those that were just a mediocre student that, that are doing amazing things now. And that keeps me walking back into the classroom, not necessarily with a smile on my face, but like a smile inside. <laughs> and that's what, keeps right. me, that's what keeps me going is knowing that 10 years down the road, I don't know what some of these kids are going to be doing. Well, that's, I mean, that's a really good thing to keep in our minds. I think because it's so easy to be focused on the right now. You know, do they have a pen? Are they prepared for class? Do they appear as though they're paying attention? You know, all these things are so immediate and so right now, but, but maybe allowing ourselves to take the time, like you're saying, to think about them in the future or think about what's happening beyond the surface because they're doing and they're juggling and they're, they're dealing with so much stuff. And I think about if I was in college when the internet was like really happening or smartphones were happening, I don't think I'd even get to school. Like I would just be uh -uh. really over it. I would be in bed watching Netflix, ordering food to be delivered to my dorm room so that I didn't have to talk to anybody. I don't, I, there's, I would not have the discipline. I was just talking to a couple students of mine, former students of mine yesterday that are now industrial design seniors, that if I had Instagram and Facebook and Netflix and a phone in my pocket, I would be watching TV all the time. I would be totally obsessing about what everybody else was saying and doing, and I would not nearly be getting any work done. Other than the fact that, as I mentioned, I'm a goody two shoes and I really want a good grade. But it would have been a real struggle to get anything done. <laughs> and I, I just don't know what it's Absolutely. like to be their age with all of that distraction. Yeah, and it, it seems like it's a valuable thing to put ourselves in their position. Because I think oftentimes it's tempting to think, well, you know, they don't know what it's like to be me. And I'm doing this. And I'm remembering all these names. And I'm blah, blah, blah. And I have faculty meetings and whatever. But wow, I mean, to, to think about what it's like to be 18 right now um, is just mind-blowing. It is totally mind-blowing. And I don't have kids of my own. But I'm now at that age where some of my friends have kids that are going off to college. And so sometimes kind of picking their brain, too, um, helps because, you know, they see the other side that we don't see in the classroom. They seem the ho- they see what they're like at home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's 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 a good point. Well, so at SCAD, are you do you have the freedom to teach any kind of projects that you want to teach or do you guys have a prescribed curriculum? We have. How, how does that work? We have a curriculum where we have to meet certain objectives, but how we actually get there is totally up to us. So you'll see a huge range um, of how faculty approach, you know, 2D design and the projects they give. There's a lot of repetition, right? You know, we're all, we're teaching about line, we're teaching about shape, we're teaching about color and texture. But you see people approaching it very differently. Some people focusing more on form, some people focusing more on content, some people focusing more on 
concepts like, you know, a project will be more about narrative or a project might be about mapping and then other people teaching really, truly just about formal choices. Oh, nice. Well, and how, how many projects would you say that you usually do within 10 weeks? So I have five projects in my 2D design course, which is the first quarter. Then in my color course, I only have four, but we have a lot of like short exercise in the beginning, all the stereotypical paint mixing. Um, and then we right. do, no, you know what? I think I only do three projects in color after that. And then yeah. in my 3D class, I do four projects over the 10 weeks. And even that is starting to feel like not, even that's starting to feel like too much. Yeah, there's a lot to do in just 10 weeks. There is, but because we're on a quarter system, which is so different than what most other faculty have, you know, we're meeting five hours a week and the students are only taking three courses. So we can demand a lot out of their time because they don't have as heavy of a load. Sure, sure. Well, are, are there projects that you're, that you're really excited about or maybe one that you've done several times that you've had good outcomes with that you feel is successful? I do. I have a couple projects that I adore. In color, my students' first projects after they've been paint mixing for like a month is we do Google Doodles. So I have students pick... Ooh. Yeah, they pick either somebody who's dead or a cultural icon. (laughs) And I define a cultural icon as something that's been culturally important for at least 30 years or a, um, like an institution, like a museum or a national park, something like that. So I'm trying to get them out of their kind of small frames of reference and they have to research that thing and design a Google doodle that commemorates it. And I do allow them to use any color media and that's one of the ones that I show them some animation techniques. So I really encourage them to have something animated within their doodle. And I just love that project. Oh, wow. And so they respond to the research that they found online and then they're coming up with their own images or are they yeah. just sort of transferring those images well, or are they? So it generally requires them and if you think of like the google doodles that you've seen that might be some of your favorites it requires kind of taking something that already exists and modifying it right you know and figuring out like one of my most one of my favorite ones that was like literally just two weeks ago celebrated zaha hadid's birthday and so you know how do you take her buildings for example and her body you know an illustration of her and make it look like the word google because that you know all the doodles right. are in that form of that word. So, you know, they're not designing from scratch, but they're modifying and they're altering and they're figuring out, you know, creating an illusion of some sort of depth and they're figuring out how to use value and hue and saturation contrasts to create emphasis and to create depth and to create unity. So, it requires a lot of choices. And I do focus it in where they take the same doodle and they have to use the Google colors in one. They have to use an analogous color scheme in another one. And they have to use 
either a split complimentary, a double complimentary, or I think just a plain complimentary in the third one. So they're also working in color schemes as well. Oh, and they're also doing more than one. So they're kind of seeing how their process can evolve or how their um, style can change. Well, and it's those the same doodle. So it's, oh, okay. it's the same, same design, doodle. Okay. but with different color choices. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. The same way you would do, you know, a different color scheme project where it's the same design with different color schemes. Right. So they can compare and contrast, like how does this look and how does this feel and all that good stuff. Exactly. Oh, that's really fun. So I love that project. And I love, you know, every year, even when I see, you know, there's, there's certain things that people want to do every year. I get a lot of Dr. Seuss. I get a lot of Totoro. You know, how many different ways can you use the Totoro <laughs> characters in a doodle? Um, and then every year, it seems like somebody has recently passed away that the students want to commemorate. So like this year, I had a ton of Willy Wonka because Gene Wilder had passed away. Right. So it's fascinating to me, and I love to challenge them and make it competitive. You know, I've got six different people doing Willy Wonka. You know, how are you each going to do it differently, and who's going to do it best? And so Mm. that's always kind of fun, just seeing the variations. Oh, wow. That's that's really, really great. And so their outcome can be flat, or it's on the computer, or there's a range of sort of what materials they can use, right? Totally. So they can be doing color pencil, they can paint, they can do it digitally. I don't allow it to just be sort of copy and pasted in Photoshop. You know, it does have to kind of be either created in Illustrator or digitally painted. It, it has to, there has to be a level of challenge and there has to be like evidence of their hand in the design. Right. And then I also show them even how they can take analog materials and still scan it and animate it in Photoshop pretty simply. Oh, nice. Very, very cool. Well, you said you had a couple. Is there another one yeah, we so can hear about? Uh, another one that I really love is um, at the end of the year in my 3D design class, um, a lot of the faculty at SCAD. I, you know, I think one or two people kind of introduced it and then we've all kind of, I shouldn't say all, many of us have taken it and turned it into something of our, our own version where students are designing small character maquettes using Sculpey on an armature. And the way I approach it is, again, Uh this isn't particularly that innovative, but they're hybridizing a natural and a man-made object into a new character. And my personal spin on it is that I require my students to create a Twitter account for their character, and they have to tweet in their character's voice. So not only are they figuring (laughs) out what their character looks like, but they're also figuring out their character's personality and how that personality can kind of translate into their physical form. And it's at the end of the year. I'm exhausted. I'm cranky. They're exhausted. Many of them are cranky. And what I have them do is their characters follow my character's Twitter. And my character is called Angry Professor. So they follow Angry Professor. (laughs) Angry Professor follows them. And then over the course of a week, we interact. And it's kind of self-serving because it allows me to get out some of my frustrations through this alter ego. But it's also fun for them because many of them, you can tell, are egging me on. 
So there's a little bit of like some flame wars that go on between our characters on Twitter. And that is fun. That takes what could just be this boring kind of formal assignment. And, and this is where kind of this humor comes in and it, it just makes it fun. And I laugh out loud constantly at the tweets they send, um, <laughs> you know, and then I scratch my head trying to think of like, you know, where's that line, you know, how snarky can I be without actually offending somebody? Nice. But, wow. That's, that's so incredible. I never in a million years would have thought to, to do that. that that's really creative. And you know what? I don't even know where it came from. I don't even remember where my inspiration was. Um, That's great. But it's just a good way at the end of the year to kind of just bring in a little bit of energy when we're all lacking it. And what I find, it goes back to kind of what we're talking about earlier. They don't know who's behind the characters. So characters will start becoming friendly or they'll start flirting or they start fighting. And then kids will come into class the next day and they'll say, Professor, who's the, the inbred doggo? Because <laughs> inbred doggo <laughs> is really weird. And I'm like, I know, isn't she great? Um, and so they become friends kind of, you know, through their phones and then they then they know who the people are. And so it's this last sort of ditch effort of building that community. Yeah, to sort of bring it all together yeah. so they can talk about things happening outside the walls of the classroom and bring it in and um, and allow that to kind of pollinate. Right. That is so that is so smart. And their characters end up being really great. You know, the actual physical results often are really good. And I show them when I introduce the project, I kind of show them a range of ways to approach it where I get a lot of characters that are puns. And I get a lot of characters that are cute, but I also get really creepy characters. And I get characters that are kind of politically driven. And there's all these different ways to kind of approach the same uh, design problem. Oh, nice. And that's what I like about it, too. I like that a student can make their, their character silly. Or I also like that a student that maybe has a different interest in life can make their character about, you know, ruining the environment or... This year and last year, obviously, I had a lot of Trump um, hybrids. Right, so right. So, they, they, you know, last year it was funny. This year, not so much. But um, <laughs> they do yeah. all still kind of go about it with a little bit of a sense of humor. Well, yeah, and it gives them permission to be themselves and to really think about what's important to them or what, what they think is funny or what they think is insightful or, or what have you. That's great. Exactly, exactly. Especially at a time at the end of the year where just nobody wants to work anymore. Yeah, and everyone's sort of over it. Yeah, but it gives them that last little push to have fun. Oh, yeah, and then everybody ends with with laughing and smiling and, you know, doing all of that. That's really great. Well, Heather, thank you so much for for joining us um, via Skype. I, I really appreciate getting to chat with you today. Same. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) You are very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversation about art foundations, visit the FATE website at foundationsart.org. Don't forget the dash between foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. If you like what you hear on Positive Space, be sure to give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Better yet, send us some audio. 
you can call Positive Space at 904-990-FATE. That's 904-990-3283. You may find your voice on the next episode of Positive Space.